I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. Mike and I watch movies separately. We talk about them for the first time on the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Ken Loach's most recent film, his 2020 release, Sorry We Missed You. It premiered on the Criterion channel. We both saw it separately about a week ago. Here we are talking about it for the first time. Mike, what was your overall impression? We've spoken about movies on this podcast that lure you into a false sense of security. This movie gives you no sense of security. That's this movie strategy from the get-go. I was very interested in, in the performances, but, and, and, and so I thought that this movie would be a movie of great performances and very little kind of directorial uh, tricks, but that's not true. The tricks are, are extremely subtle. So I'll, let me talk about just one that, that caught my attention. Sure. The way that the scanner, the gun beeps, you, what you don't notice is that it fades in and fades out. It's like the it's like the piccolo in a symphony or something. It's a little note that this director plays with on the soundtrack so beautifully because it's supposed to be promising but slightly ominous, and then he he brings it forward every time. In, in other words, this sound effect is lowered to allow for dialogue, and then it's raised as background noise. So it's it's obviously very technically played with. It seems like the kind of movie where not everything is done on purpose, in other words. And I think on rewatching it, I saw it a second time that everything is done on purpose. There's, there's nothing out of place in this movie. Yeah, it's funny. One of my jokes about owning a house is you have to kill yourself taking care of the house to make it look like you're not killing yourself taking care of the house. And I say that because the movie seems like it's almost underdirected. But of course, that's all part of Ken Loach's art is that it just seems that way. And the scan, the, the gun thing is, is a great, great example of that. I mean, you could almost, you don't know if, if to use another um, director, a British director, you know, is it like a, like a Mike Lee movie where, where the, the actors are encouraged to get together and improvise those scenes. I think the performances in this movie are so strong that they look improvised, but they're not. And that's what, that's the, the artistry of the film. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I was thinking of a lot of Italian neo-realist films when I was watching this. Uh, I mean, The Bicycle Thieves, this is not but I, I agree with you that the in, intended impression is, is to give that, th that this is all natural. This is just, yeah. this is how people talk. This is how people are. Um, but I, I would agree that, that it, this movie is heavily directed and, and controlled. Yes, and wonderfully so. And my, you know, it's funny because my overall take on this was you said about how good the performance are and to make it look like it's not directed. Um, it was so great to see a movie where every performance was an A plus, but they were no big name actors. Like imagine if the, imagine if someone had to do an American version of this, they'd get Tom Hanks to play the father, and they'd get you know uh, you know a kid from Stranger Things to play the daughter. But I you know that that is such the appeal because it almost makes it like it's like a, a molecule away from a documentary, and I think yeah. that's great about it because the, the performances are so good. It tricks you into the sense of voyeurism. Yeah, it makes, you, it makes you feel like that that the director has just peeled a wall off the house or you're Superman and you have x-ray vision. Obviously a very smart casting director behind all of this picking and choosing and this family is very well constructed. Well constructed with by the casting director and by the director and by the script. I mean, think about how many realistic moments from a marriage and from a family are in this. Like think about how you don't get the makeup after the fight. After he has the fight with the son, you don't get you don't get the makeup scene. Um when Liza cries about taking the keys, 
I can't remember if I've ever seen a better kid crying scene because you know people because you know when kids cry they do that like uh, 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 which Eddie Murphy actually made fun of in his stand-up act like it was so it was so spot on the parents lying in bed talking about the kids I mean every, everything the, everything about it seems so real yeah I think all uh, kids crying in movie scenes go from like my girl at a zero to uh, Elliot and E.T. at a 10 and I would call this an eight and a half which is that's as close to an A-plus as I'm going to give. High praise indeed. Okay, I'll see you in part two. Okay, welcome back. You know how part two works. Uh, Dan, what's your moment? My, my moment is early on in the film, when he's learning the ropes, he's told he can't lose the gun, which means, of course, he's going to lose the gun later on. Um, and he's, you see him learning how to, how to navigate traffic. He's in his white van. And it's the moment where he drops off a package and the guy notices that he has a Manchester United jersey on. And the guy, the other guy has a different jersey on. And he says, well, why don't you support a local team? And he says, I do. I'm from Manchester. I can't do the accents. He says, I do. I'm from Manchester. And he goes, no. And they start going back and forth about, about you know, uh, football lore. And I think that's such a great moment because the first time you see the film, you're, you're still early on into his experiment. So it's very funny. And you're glad when he's walking away going like, F off. Like, it's so funny because uh, he's not going to, you know, you could say whatever you want about the package, but don't insult my, my football club. And I think that that, that moment, it, it draws you closer to the character, to the father. You're more on his side. But then what happens is you're pulled in. Before you said lulled, you're lulled into something that becomes much darker, just like him buying the van. He's full of optimism. There'll be some bumps in the road. Some some people will be jerks when you drop off their packages, but I'll make this work. And in a year, we'll have the van paid off, etc. But the movie lulls you into this false sense that everything's going to be okay. And you have no idea what's coming up of how bad it's going to get. And neither does he. What was your moment? So my moment is, uh, has also to do with kind of the beauty of the structure. So you chose an early moment. Yeah. Uh, another example of this would be when he takes his daughter on deliveries with him. And then it turns out that it's one of those customer interactions where he's got his daughter with him. Uh, that means that she can never be in the van again. Right. Literally, you know, the customers start out as kind of friendly, yeah. um, you know, and do me a favor, just sign for it. And, you know, give them a hard time and eye rolling to ju literally just took your kids away. Yeah. Took your kid, took your kids away in the closest sense that they that they possibly can. So here's my moment, and this points back again to the director's intentionality, which is just like check. It's like Chekhov's bottle, where he gets he gets the bottle in the first scene. His friend hands him to it and tells him that you're going to need to urinate in the bottle because you won't have time to, to pull over and stop. Uh, and finally, at the moment, you, you think it, he can't possibly get any lower. He is it's bereft of all dignity and he uses the door to half shield himself and he pees in the bottle which is when a group of guys jump him for the cell phones that he has mm -hmm. they obviously they beat him very badly and then the the last insult is they find the pee bottle and they pour it on him yeah and that is just an it's 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 so low and the movie says to you even with 20 minutes left if you think that this is the low point we yeah. have a long way to go. And yeah. I think that that points to the overall, to the overall structure of the movie, but also is, is one of those well-constructed moments. It's, it's the point at which he accepts himself as a driver. He's just going to, he's going to use the bottle and that's who I am now that things become worse. Yeah.
It, I, I looked at my watch a few times watching this, not out of boredom at all, but after scenes where I thought, how much more is this guy going to go through? And how much more is this family going to go through? So he has a terrible fist fight with his son, right? When he starts screaming at each other. Then you get the son painting the pictures with the X's. Then you get the daughter um, crying and admitting she took the keys. Then he gets his ass kicked. Then they pour pee on him. Then he can't, can't wait in the emergency room. You also have the whole, how about his sainted wife, you know, who, who lets the, um, the, the dementia patient, you know, comb her hair while she sings Goodnight Irene, who has to be constantly at their beck and call, taking the bus to get from here to there. More than once I looked at my watch, again, not out of boredom because I was riveted by the film, but to think to myself, what else is going to possibly happen to this guy? There's always a line of privacy with, with, with characters. And it's obviously, you know, the, the old HBO trope is they're going to violate every, you know, everything about a character's privacy. They're going to bring you everything. And then classical Hollywood cinema is we're going to insinuate everything. And this is, this is a spectrum. Yeah. What's interesting about this movie is that it's committed to social realities, but the social realities that it's committed to have a lot to do with bodily functions between her being a nurse and him being actually trapped in the van. Yeah. Um, but not in a way that can give you any sympathy for the characters. You just feel bad. There, sometimes you see a character in a movie do a good thing and you could wish to be them, but you wouldn't wish to escort an elderly patient to the bathroom and uh, beyond their dignity, have to have to clean them off with them feeling infantilized and having lost their sense of control. You wouldn't want to be the one peeing in a bottle and trying to defend yourself against the group of guys with, with the cell phone. So I think that the, the easy route in social reality is only financial. And obviously there's a lot of that in this, in this movie, when she looks at her husband, she says, well, I only have to take the bus because you sold me car, right. you know? Um, but it goes so far beyond that to the most basic level of human need that they're not allowed to have. And, and that's where, the, that's where the dignity has gone out of these, out of these characters. And I thought that that was really well done in the script. Yeah, and it's funny because his wife, part of her her mission, so to speak, is that she wants to bring dignity to people. So the guy's on the toilet. He's like, I can't believe this happened. She goes, no, it's okay. It gets old. And when the when the woman calls, says, I sat in here and I wet myself. And she's a, she won't give him a hard time. Like She wants to restore people's dignity. Um, but she's trying to restore her own and she's trying to let her husband have his dignity. And that's why at the end, when he gets in the car, we'll talk about that maybe in the next, in the next segment about him trying to get his dignity back in the final scene. All right, I'll see you in segment three. Sounds good. So welcome back. In part three, we like to talk about the title or we talk about the last shot or any final impressions or things we didn't get to talk to in the first two segments. So Mike, what do you make of the end or the overall film or the title? Sure. Let's start with the ending with that, with that last scene okay. where he's driving away and he's, he's literally got a break away from his son. He's, he's finally found his son's maturity and humanity because there's, it, there's no words to tell somebody that adulthood is, is just, you have to do what you have to do. And that's, and, and that's what it is. But you can see that the realization of that in, in the son, the son is the audience. The son is the audience in the sense that he does kind of whatever he wants. He's not drawn into their drama. He's not going, it, having lunch and eating sandwiches out of the back of the car like the little girl. He didn't have to sell his car, you know, like the wife in order for this. He's not making the deliveries and suffering day in and day out. So his realization is supposed to be our realization, our, our participation, I think. Uh, but it's too late. It's it, he he doesn't he literally doesn't have the time to cash in on this realization. So the son is ready to draw close, and they can't draw close. There's literally a window between them, and and it's 
it's almost insufferable. It's, it's almost as close as to insufferable as I can get. Like classical Hollywood cinema, Casablanca, giving up love, but getting something in return or knowing you've done the right thing. This is giving up love, but knowing that you're doing the wrong thing at the same time. But well, it's I think he does get, I mean, I think he is reconciled with his son at the end. I mean, but it's just that, it, I mean, I think that's one of the, the small victories he has is that when he's looking at his son's artwork and, and, and you know, things aren't going to be so bad. And maybe they'll get to go back to that nice moment they had where, where they have the uh, Indian takeaway and they're kind of laughing at his father can't eat the hot stuff. But it's just, you're right, at the end, there's a window between them and, and he just he just leaves and, and that's it. So we don't know. I mean, the movie could have gone on another two hours. It, it, it could have, but... Um, what I wanted to say about the overall structure of the film is that it's really, it's a version of, of Dante's Inferno, that this guy, like, he finds himself, you know, midway through his life in the wood, and then he has to, he has to make a decision, but unfortunately that decision is, is, a, is an ice cream cone shaped hell, where every single level you think, well, surely we've hit the bottom, but there's no, you, you can't possibly have hit the bottom because the bottom is the drive to work they should have the day together as a family to, to process, here's what happened, let's reset our home. But he can't be at home because in order to afford a home, he can't be in the home at the same time. And he and can't that's get the, that's, the, that's the tip of the ice cream cone. Yes. That's, that's the depth of hell. He's Dante without Virgil. I mean, that's, that's exactly what he is. I'm falling to the bottom. So um, my, my take on, on, the, on the ending, I guess, or, or the film is it reminded me of something. I'm going to give you a little quiz now. This reminded me of a, a, a conversation we had about a book. So we, we talk about books, but we're not talking about movies. And uh, I said that I think this book is far better than people who regard it as simply um, an indictment of, of, of social mores. Do you remember what book we were talking about? No. Revolutionary Road. Ah, good one. So Mike, got, Mike had read Revolutionary Road a long time ago. I had just recently read it during lockdown and I texted him and I said, this is such a great book. And Mike's like, oh yeah, of course, it's an excellent book. And then when I started reading about it online, just seeing what people's reactions were, looking at things like Goodreads and other sites, it's funny because people call Revolutionary Road an indictment of the 50s, you know, it's good, and including the author. But I think the book is so much more than that. I think, and I don't want to get into a whole thing on that. I mean, but I think that the whole idea that Teddy's going to be this, this rebel and, and go to France, I mean, he's as delusional as the thing he's fighting against and and the reason I thought of that is because you know Ken Loach is a really political filmmaker right so he made you know the wind that shakes the barley which is great and land and freedom and I Daniel Blake and things and so when you look at, when you read about this film online it's touted very often as like an indictment of like you know the gig economy and this is what Amazon does to people or FedEx and things like that but I, I don't think it's agitprop. I, I think it's a movie about people. And it reminded me, the, reading about it reminded me of when people say Death of a Salesman is this indictment of capitalism or the American dream, just because they know where Arthur Miller stood on a lot of things. But I think that's just such a limiting and a weak way to approach great art. I don't think this movie's an essay. I think this movie's, I think this movie's great art. And because um, it, it, it you know, would I agree with Ken Loach on every political view? Like, I don't know. But do, do I agree that he you know, made an absolutely admirable work of art about human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think one way to talk about the essence of human dignity is in its violation. And that's really what this, that's really what this movie is. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's almost, it's almost literally physical. It's physics, meaning he's going to take you to the bottom, but the drawing to the bottom is an ascent to the top because you can feel that, the worth of one human or four humans together as a family again in, in 
the ways in which they're it yeah. violated. Right. That's but I mean, it's that's funny to read it and experience it. Yeah. Well, he doesn't, and it's funny because the filmmaker, because Ken Loach, you know, doesn't not give it, does not give an answer. Like, what's the answer then? So, if we used to have a world where you worked from a, from eight to four, nine to five, and you were home with your family, and you had time to do like family stuff and work stuff, and like, so is, is that world gone? Yeah. Is it gone for a lot of people? Yeah. Do people work two jobs all the time, three jobs, right? Um, but I don't know what the answer is to that. And I don't think the film offers offers an answer to its credit. It just kind of says this is what it's like. I mean, I think the one party might do that a little bit is when um is when she has the breakdown in the emergency room. It gives the whole speech up. You know, that's a little rah-rah, that's a little bit, but but she's such she's so good and it's her reaction is so believable that you know, I think I think it, it, this movie is so much better than an essay. But here's the specific way in which it's better than an essay for me, which is if you were to write an essay about this, you would impugn the, the people that ran the company as merely greedy. But there is a greed is good speech in the center of this movie, which is when his supervisor tells him why he can't take a day off. Right. And what's, re- what's there in the subtext, speaking of good casting, by the way, what's yeah. there in the subtext as his manager is talking is, I am afraid and the world is gross. And the only thing that protects me from the world being gross is ruining your life. Well, he says, I make yeah. it a shell. I take every, you know, this guy had piles, this guy's sister. Like, I, I make it a shell around me because if I start to get emotional, then I'm going to lose sight of the whole thing. And all that matters is the gun. And he says, he says, all that matters are people get these packages and that we're the number one distribution center. So, in other words, I, I think it's easy to villainize the way that people feel when it's a, when it's about greed, but if you understand that it's not necessarily about greed, but it's about personal human fear, and that the way that that guy essentially admits that it's about fear, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes much more interesting. Yeah, much more interesting. I read if I if I may end with a great quote from our from a re, another reading from the book of Ebert. I was reading a review of his, uh, another one of his essays about a great film, and this was not about this movie, but I came across these two sentences and I wrote them down because I wanted to use them in today's episode. Here's what he says. And this is what I mean by this movie is so much better than a, than a bumper sticker or a, a hashtag or a political statement or an op-ed piece. Ebert says this, entertainment is about the way things should be. Art is about the way they are. And I think that this movie says, this is what this is what the world is like now for a lot of people. Now, if that makes you dis- discuss later on in the car on the way home, like, well, then what's the solution? How do you avoid, like, that's a whole other thing. But I think in terms of, of uh, to use a cliche, a slice of life, it's hard to imagine someone doing a better slice of life than this. I would agree with that. And and especially one that's as well controlled uh, and, and well structured, yeah. you know, a sli- slice of life seem is, is a kind of naturalism, uh, which this is not. It's uh, what a light touch this guy has though. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. So we hope you enjoyed our conversation about, sorry, we missed you. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm, at 15 Minute Film. Let us know what you'd like us to watch. Let us know what you think about the movies we like and give us some ideas. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.